Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. Let's talk low vision. My name is Dr. Bill Takesta, and tonight we're very, very lucky to have two great guests on our show tonight. And from Diamond Bar, California, we have Kathy Schmidt-Whitaker. And from Anaheim, California, just next to Disneyland, we have Mr. Keith Christian. And tonight what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about when to let others know that you have a vision impairment and how to do that. I, I remember for myself, when, when I first started to lose my vision, I was so, so, so embarrassed. That's the best way that I could describe it. I, I had such a huge ego that I didn't want anybody to know that there was anything flawed with me. I didn't want people to know that I was visually impaired. I didn't want people to see me using a magnifier or sunglasses or a cane or any device, and I basically hid. I basically hid. I went into isolation. I changed my telephone number. I didn't return phone calls, and I would say for a good six months of my life, I lost it, and I'll never get it back. But uh, soon, I learned the importance of letting others know. Uh, so tonight, this is a topic that we're going to be talking about, and we have our, our two guests, Kathy and Keith, who are also going to go ahead and share some of their information. So uh, welcome to the show, Kathy and Keith. Thank, Thank you for having us. Yeah, I, I really like the way that that sounds. You know, it's like Regis and Kathy Lee. We could have Keith and Kathy and, you know, <laughs> get rid of Dr. Bill. <laughs> so, um, Kathy, why don't you go ahead and can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? When, when did you first start to have vision problems and, and what are you doing now? Are you, are you employed or uh, what are some of the things that you're doing today? Well, I was born with, um, healthy, but yet with uh, some eye difficulties. I was born with cataracts and an undeveloped optic nerve. When I and so that decreased my vision. So I have always been low vision or legally blind, uh, 2400 to 2600 eyesight. When I was four and five, I had a cataract surgery because I had cataracts in both eyes. After that, my left eye became a lazy eye, and I didn't really use the eyesight that I had. Uh, and so the eye, deta- the retina detached, and I played tricks on my doctors. Uh, I figured since they were having fun looking into my eyes, I'd have fun with them and told them I could see and faked my eye chart exam oh. because they had plastic, oh, no. <laughs> they had plastic eye, um, eye covers. And so I turned my head to the side and tell them what the chart said, saying I could see out of my left eye when I was really using my right eye. They didn't, I was really surprised they never figured this out until I told them after the third or fourth time of seeing a variety of different doctors. Um, it, it was non-retrievable, so I have no vision eyesight in my left eye. In my right eye, as I said, I uh, have low vision. I was able to read newspaper print with Coke bottle bottom glasses, so really thick glasses, which is really hard as an elementary school student. So I used uh, immersively as well. So it was obvious that I couldn't see that well, when, uh, but yet I could read um, paper. And I had challenges throughout school because individuals thought, well, because I can't see that well, you also must not uh, be able to learn or you might, your eyes might be too strained to learn to read. So in fifth grade, I remember the teacher saying, that's okay, you don't have to read, I'll just go ahead and pass you. And I said, no, I want to read. In high school, the high school counselor said, you don't need, you know, not everybody goes to college, Kathy. And I said, well, what do they do? Because my parents say I'm going to college, and I have the grades to go, and I want to go. When I was in college, uh, I then um, had a teacher when I went to share with her that I couldn't, I was, would have difficulty seeing and she said, well, I don't know if you can take this class and interview, you know, which was counseling interview techniques, because you're not going to be able to read the question. And I said, I can use, a, you know, use the copy machine and enlarge the questions because it was before computer days. And um, I can also memorize the questions and ask. And she had doubts. 
Well, I went on and received my master's degree in counseling uh, from Cal State Fullerton and my doctorate degree in organizational leadership and um, is from the University of Laverne. So I was able to uh, develop strategies and techniques to be able to successfully um, perform education, as well as then I've been employed at Cal Poly Pomona University in Southern California for the past 18 years. I was a, served as a career counselor, coordinated an advising uh, program for undeclared majors. We served as the academic home. And currently, I'm the director of the Disability Resource Center at the university. And that's all? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm also involved with uh, CCLVI um, oh. as the chair of the scholarship committee, uh, as well as in the American Council of the Blind. Uh, I also run ha- or walk uh, with my husband half and full marathons and also uh, work with the Sierra Club uh, Lodge up in Mount Baldy in the mountains. That's amazing. That's so incredible. And and as you went through a lot of these things, having the cataracts, was there ever a time that you were ever fit with contact lenses or uh, intraocular lens implant to replace Coke bottle glasses? No, because I was told that the lenses, since it, all this occurred when I was still growing, that uh, they couldn't, the lenses were only one size, and I would grow and outgrow the lenses, and so um, they didn't want to do that. Also, I think it was more, if you ask me, it was probably more that I was also pretty adventurous, so I would jump off of things um, quite a bit and um, play in river, rushing rivers and different things, and so they wanted me to wear glasses to protect uh, my eyes as well. Uh, I should also say I was a competitive swimmer, um, and actually swimming and getting in and competing in swimming was the first time that I could say I felt that I was on an equal playing field with all of my peers. Wow, that's impressive. That's impressive. And and um, Mr. Keith Christian, can you yeah. tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. Um, I was born uh, with retinitis pigmentosa. And uh, I was born basically legally blind, 2200 vision, which was quite, you know, still very functional. Uh, I was able to read regular print until about the third grade when we noticed that uh, it was just getting too, too laborious. And um, I learned um, how to uh, bluff my way as well, not just on reading the eye charts, but also in the classroom. I found it really... Um, difficult uh, growing up with a visual impairment because I was the only kid in my school that didn't see very well, it seemed like anyways, or was legally blind. So it was something that I always found, uh, I wanted to fit in so bad that I'd pretty much do anything to uh, to fit in and not look different from everybody else. <clears throat> that would include, you know, uh, turning pages in, in my book and making them <clears throat> match the, the, the pictures on the pages to the person next to me and things like that. It was uh, quite a challenge. But as I uh, got older, in uh, high school, my vision started to deteriorate. And so uh, they noticed that uh, I had cataracts, and the cataracts were beginning to cloud the central, the center, my central vision. And I noticed I was you know, walking into things and bumping into things, and um, uh, they, it got to the point to where they, they said that they wouldn't take the contacts out unless, I mean, the, the cataracts out unless it was a complete blockage of vision. And it got to that point, and they, they removed the lenses in my eyes, and they gave me those Coke bottle bottoms as well. <clears throat> I graduated from high school, and, and uh, I survived it, I think. It, was, it wasn't something, it, it was really rough because I pretty much did my best to get through. I, I, I identify a lot with what you were saying earlier, Dr. Bill, about hiding and uh, you know not um, sharing with other people how you know how you feel. And and, and uh, I was rather immature, and uh, it, it took a long time after high school when I started college. That's when it really started to click for me. <clears throat> um, I became a little more comfortable. I guess, in my own skin with a visual impairment. Plus, my vision was starting to deteriorate more rapidly. And I went to college. I knew I wanted to go to college. I had to learn how to I used a CCTV for a long time. I was able to uh, do well in school. 
but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I ended up taking a lot of, um, you know, general ed core stuff like that. And um, I eventually really would like to be a teacher. And so I targeted becoming a VI teacher. And uh, I graduated from uh, Cal State Fullerton in uh, 1996. And then actually it was 95. And then I went to Cal State LA and got my teaching credential for uh, teaching blind and visually impaired in 96. And I've been a teacher for the last 15 years. And uh, you want to talk a little bit about your, your family that you, you were just speaking to moments ago. Sure. Um, I'm married. I have two kids. Um, I have a daughter that's in uh, seventh grade and my son who's in fifth grade. And they're amazing. It's They're very active. Um, my wife is a is a very actively involved PTA mom, and, and she is uh, very, very the, – the, the family life is really my main focus, but work is the means of taking care of the family, you know. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think it's just really impressive, and it shows how the two of you who were born, you were born visually impaired, and you really were able to overcome – a lot of the things that were even said by teachers and other people within the school, even at this most recent date. Now, Kathy, how how have you been able to tell others about your vision impairment? In other words, when you would meet people or somebody would call you on the phone, for example, um, would you would you often right away tell people that you had your vision problem, or would you wait, or what did you find to be the best way to let others know? you had a vision problem. Well, one of the things I'd like to share is that until about 10, 15 years ago, I was a pretty high-functioning um, individual. So I, in a way, I guess, was trying to fit in and hide. So I, did, I used a cane, but only at night. I um, used magnification. I stopped wearing the Coke bottle glasses. Actually, when I got into high school, and um, because they weren't helping. They really had no clue in them. <laughs> and so for me, I think it was wanting to fit in as well. When I was in college and I went up to an instructor, because I was very proactive and open to my instructors um, to let them know at the beginning of the course that I, um, who I was, that I was um, legally blind. What that means to me is that what you can see at 200 feet, I can see at 20, I can see your face, but I can't see the, uh, your eyes or where you're looking or if you wave, I can, you know, I can't see that. If I look at your face, I can see your face, but I can't see anything below your neck because I also have glaucoma and I've had retinal detachment before too. Um, so I would use some of those descriptor phrases that would hopefully help them understand how I saw um, and like I, if I look at a piece of paper, if it's a large size print, I can see that. I can see color. I can see you have a blue shirt on with white stripes. So I try to make it descriptive within the the setting that we're in. Well, when I was met with an instructor one time, she's you know she said, "Oh yeah, I know who you are." And I you know when I looked at her, I'm like, "Okay, this is a class of 200 students. I've never met you before. How do you know who I am?" And she's like, oh, everybody in the, in the department knows who you are. Because I was the only student who was legally blind in my, you know, in my program in the college, in the university. And I, you know, and at first I was like very shocked and, you know, was like, oh my goodness, this isn't good. And then I realized, you know, if I'm noticed and I want to go to graduate school and I need letters of recommendation, this is actually a blessing in disguise because I'm known. And so I started trying to use that from a, you know, view it from a positive standpoint. And even to this day, I have people say, oh, they will recognize me um, in different places. Or, yeah, I knew you from X. Or I remember seeing you. And it's so funny because I, I have a very distinct look, I guess you can say, because one of my eyes droops, eyelids droops. And I've been asked, do I want cosmetic surgery to uh, so that it won't droop? So I'll look, quote, I guess, more normal. And I say to me, no, because that, that one, it may alter what the eyesight I do have, that, and I don't want to jeopardize that. And two, 
it's not really that big of a deal to me personally at this point in my life, but I have tried to use that um, to my advantage. Um, I do use a white cane now. As I said, I started using that about 10 years ago on a regular basis because I began having difficulty and, uh, you know, uh, having difficulty stepping off curbs and downstairs. And it became more, uh, once I started using the cane more often, I became more confident in the use of the cane and realized that that I, I had more access to things and people were more, um, approached me more or were more uh, assistive, uh, provided more assistance when I used the cane than when I didn't use the cane and tried to blend in. That's really, really, really interesting. And that really mirrors a lot of my uh, story. I remember the first time that I was willing to use a cane, Mm -hmm. I decided I was going to use a cane because I was in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. I said to my family, I said, yeah, let's go to Vegas. It was the winter vacation. Had the kids, my wife, and we got into the car, and uh, we were in Vegas. And uh, I wanted to see all the new things in the hotels. And uh, when I was using my vision, I had to look at the ground and scan and search to make certain I wouldn't trip and fall. So I said, you know what, I'm going to pull out the cane here because nobody here is going to know me. And I could see how helpful it is. I opened up the cane and less than 50 feet, somebody said, Dr. Bill, Dr. Bill. (laughs) (laughs) But it was so interesting, and I I was still able to see, and this person looked at the cane and looked at me and kind of was a little bit awkward about it, said, you know, what are you doing here? You vacationing? I said, yeah. And I I soon learned that using the cane, it really didn't mean anything to him. I think uh, he was, you know, kind of wondering what I was doing with the cane and things. But I soon found that people would help me. They would open doors, and they were very, very helpful and things like that. The airport, when I was there through the airport, you know, going through airports with the cane has been helpful. So for for me, I found just like you, as soon as I used the cane, it did two things for me personally. Number one, it eliminated my need to let others know that I was visually impaired. I didn't have to announce to people I'm taking a long time here because I can't see, or uh, I didn't have to try to explain why I was holding up the line or anything, and as soon as people saw the cane. So for me, the cane was really the way that I have been able to let others know my vision impairment. How about you, Keith? Yeah, my my experiences mirror yours uh, closely. I found that it was really important for me to carry a cane after I learned that it, 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 it made it possible for me to have my script I don't see very well and have the cane there to explain. But I, I did notice that in the beginning, people, people see me moving around and doing things, and I don't look, quote-unquote, blind. So it was very confusing to them when, when I would say I don't see very well when I didn't have the cane, but the cane just made it instantly got it. You know, I don't have to explain as much. You know, I just say, you know, I don't see very well, and I just kind of make the cane visible, you know. It just made life a whole lot easier. Excellent. And I do want to share, and hopefully I won't be uh, uh, sharing anything that Keith is not wanting me to, but Keith and I actually were at Cal State Fullerton at the same time together. Mm-hmm. And one of the things at the uh, assistive technology lab, we we and another individual would talk quite a bit and share some of our experiences. And I distinctly remember us having a conversation about using a cane and when when did we use it and when did we get in and how did we feel. And one of the things that I found interesting was that um, it seemed in certain situations that I might be, as a female, might be more accepted using a cane or the perception of us might be that I, as a female, I might be more um, accepted using a cane versus a male using a cane, or at least that's the perception, you know, sometimes the perception of men is that if I use a cane, I won't be, I'll be seen more as feminine than as masculine. Um, And I do remember a conversation where we were talking about getting on a bus and talking about with bus drivers and, you know, what would bus drivers, you know, say to us and, you know, and the different experiences we had and I said yeah when I get on the bus the bus driver oftentimes will comment gosh you know I can't believe you dress so well considering that you can't see 
or <laughs> or says, um, well, that's okay. You don't have to worry about paying for the ride here since you can't see. Um, whereas I know that I make more money than the bus driver does income-wise, and I should be paying my full way. You know, there. But sometimes it becomes more of a challenge convincing the driver that I should be paying my fare than just say, okay, thank you, and go have a seat. Um, so I think sometimes gender plays a role in how we per- how we perceive the use um, of our eyesight and the use of assistive technology or of, of the cane, you know, the white cane or not. And how about for yeah. you, Keith? Have you have you found any experiences where? as you used your cane to help to identify that you had a vision impairment, that people took that as being, quote, less less masculine because you had the cane? I think early on, I think I was very um, hypersensitive about the whole cane thing, more than probably most, I don't know. But it's probably pretty typical. I don't know about the... Ma- I, 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 think, I, I think I look at it in terms of, of people who... I look at it in terms of pity versus you got gusto. You know, I, when I when I go out there and I'm in public or I'm I'm out there, so to speak, I, I run across people who I kind of categorize as the ones that want to help me because I'm the poor blind guy versus the guy that's really got the the guts to do what it takes to get out there and do what he's doing. And and I remember getting on those buses at Cal State Fullerton, and I remember very clearly. Walking down the aisleway, going without a cane, going. Oh God, I hope I find a seat. Oh God, I hope I don't get to the end of the bus before I find a seat because I don't want to turn around and go back and back and forth, and then sit down and it's on somebody's lap or their lunch. You know, <laughs> I mean, believe me, it happened. But but with the cane, I found that people would go, Hey, there's this empty seat right here, and they'd tap on the seat, or you know, they'd figure out some way, or they'd try and grab you, or whatever. But I I found you know. Uh, I found that uh, the cane, once I accepted it as not being something that made me who I am, but rather it, it helped me be more comfortable with my abilities, I think I came to terms with it a whole lot more. I still didn't like using it at first, but I realized that this is a tool to get me where I want to go, and I can get to my seat quicker, faster, uh, uh, more comfortably, and not as embarrassed than if I walk around acting like I can see looking like an idiot. <laughs> and, you know, for, for myself, too, one of the things that I ask my family, I ask my kids, uh, you know, are you guys embarrassed because <laughs> your dad is walking with a cane? Or are you embarrassed when I ask you, hey, will you take dad to the bathroom? And I got the cane. And my kids just said, no, it is so funny, dad. My, my son, he said, it's so funny, you know, getting place when we walk in places, you know, everybody is looking at us. And, and he, he was, you know, gosh, he must have been 11 years old or so. He goes, Dad, I never knew that so many people have never seen Japanese people before. <laughs> <laughs> and he really thought people were looking at us because we were, you know, one of the only Japanese in the restaurant. I said, no, I think they're looking at us because of the cane. <laughs> Now, how did how did things work for you um, with respect to dating and you know things such as that? Uh, did you let um, your boyfriends or girlfriends or significant others that you're interested in know that you had a vision impairment? Uh, let's say that you met them on the phone or uh, whatever. Um, how about you, Keith? I, I, I well, early on, I, I tried to hide it for as long as possible, um, and. Um, you know, the way I met my wife was over the phone. She was uh, a wrong, right number, you know. And um, we we talked on the phone uh, for three months before we actually met. And um, she found out from somebody else that I was blind. And um, she was rather upset, to be honest with you. I, I But it was, it was kind of nice because I could have a conversation with somebody on terms that weren't based on vision visual impairment you know it was like it never came up and i never intended to you know bring it up 
but eventually when we met, I knew it was going to happen. But when she found out, she was rather upset. But uh, but that was a unique circumstance. But usually, you know, everybody kind of knew that I couldn't see very well. I, I was the only one keeping the secret. Everybody, you know, I, I used to ride my bicycle everywhere. And uh, when I run into, you know, trash cans or I would notice that the chain link was up on the fence and I'd wipe out, I, I, I would act like I, I tried to jump it. I'd try and do something to act like I saw it when everyone's going, oh, Oh, God, when's this guy going to give up a bike? You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> you know, but so I think hiding it was my, I, I was a master at it. But see, during the day, I could do it. I could pull it off during the day. But at night, I can't see it at night. So I'd always, I'd have to use a reference such as lights to, to guide myself around. And it became more of an issue. So if I was riding my bicycle with friends at night, I had to find some way to let them know, hey, you got to talk to me. I need to, you know, I need to hear your voice so I know where to ride or, you know, where the, where the parked cars are, where the sidewalks and where, you know, things like that. When, when you turn, you know, I'll, I'll go straight, they turn, you know. But uh, I tried to hide it for a long time, but then eventually uh, I learned that it was better to let them know up front and then they could give me some coaching. Yeah, and our last uh, CCLBI telephone thing, which was about dating with Lucas, and uh, Krista McDonald said she had just found it so much easier dating by just letting people know on her Facebook page that she has a vision impairment. Now, how about you, Kathy? You said that in high school you stopped wearing the glasses, so perhaps a lot of people who just saw you maybe at the mall or wherever, they didn't know you had a vision problem. How did you uh, let others know, or did you keep it from others that were calling you? Um, I think a couple of things. One is they just thought I was stuck up because they would wave and I wouldn't see them and they wouldn't know, I wouldn't know that they tried to wave and they wouldn't know that I couldn't see them. They just thought I ignored them. So I, you know, I had the, you know, kind of reputation of, of being stuck up. Um, and then I think for me, it was also like going to a dance, you know, where it's dark to begin with and then seeing, you know, across the room or making eye contact, all of that, that just, couldn't happen. So, for me, um, it it uh, it was more the conversations and and kind of saying, uh, why you know I can't really see in that place or um, the. So I guess I, I did share in thinking about the question. What comes to my mind more is when I was the, at the surface level, the dating level. It wasn't as much of an issue to me. It was either you like me for who I am or not and um, that sort of thing. Once I got into more of a serious relationship, it was more important to me to say, you know, when you when you get up from the table, you need to push in the chair because I can't see it and I'll trip over it if you leave it out. Or don't, you know, I can't have the, you know, the, uh, the door, the door ajar, um, or I, when I have things in the refrigerator, I need to put them back in the same place so I know where they are. And more of those kind of day-to-day practical things were things that I would query the person I was dating about. So I, I guess I was more open about it and kind of saying, if you want this relationship to go further, then here are some of the things we have to, you know, come to terms with before we go any further. Um, otherwise, it would be, you know, it's going to be a waste of our time. Um, I, I do remember when I was in college, I actually had uh, a retinal detachment. I've, I had three emergency surgeries during college, and after one of them, I and some friends went out to the nightclub after um, when I got back to school, and I had to wear sunglasses um, to protect my eyes uh, for about two months. And so I got really cheap, you know, but uh, different color, you know, rim glasses that would could match my outfits. And so I wore them out to the nightclub. And the first time we went out to the nightclub, all these attracted more guys than usual. And it's like, <laughs> what's going on here? And they were just so intrigued and just thought it was the coolest thing that I was wearing sunglasses. And then they didn't realize that I couldn't see. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then I would have to say, Oh, okay. Well, I can't really, you know, I can't see right now, you know. So, will you lead me out to, you know, onto the floor? Oh, okay. What does that mean? And I, well, let me hold on to your elbow, and we, you know, and let's walk out there. And then when we were done, walk me back to where I was before, not to someplace else. You know. So it was a very interesting experience, and I found that actually, um, 
more fun saying, I, you know, wearing the sunglasses and saying I couldn't see, being obvious about not being able to see and was approached a lot more than when I could see. Well, you know, for you too, what's really, uh, is just really amazing that even at a young age, such as high school, you have the self-confidence and self-esteem to say, hey, if you don't like me for what I am, then I don't, I don't need you. And I don't know that, um, every, everybody is that way. Do you have any ideas as to why you had that inner strength? Was this something that came from your parents where they said to you, you know, you are going to go to college. You are a, a wonderful person. It doesn't matter if you see or not. Was there anything in particular that really gave you the strength? Yes, I was fortunate um, in two ways. One, my parents said, we're raising you as, to, for you to function in the in the world. And I have a sister that's 18 and a half months younger. So everything uh, you know, she did, I had to do. You know. um, when I was four and a half, um, my mom loves telling the story. The resource specialist was at the house, and I said I was hungry. And she said, okay, there's an orange in the, ki- in the refrigerator and knife on the counter. Be careful. Don't cut yourself. And oh. I went and cut, you know, cut the orange. And the resource specialist was more nervous than my mom. She's like, are you sure you don't want to cut it for your, you know, for Kathy? And she's like, no, she's cut it before. And if she makes, you know, she cuts herself, she'll learn from that lesson. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think, you know, so it was strength from that. My parents also didn't let me use the blind card, shall I say, even though I tried. So and one of my chores was cleaning the bathroom. And one day I had to clean the mirror. And I thought, well, I can't see to clean it, so I'm just not going to do it. So I cleaned the bathroom, and then I had to have my mom check it. And she said, you haven't cleaned the mirror. And I said, you know, I said, but I can't see to clean it. She goes, you can figure out a way and walked away. And I thought, wow. damn. <laughs> uh, and so then I realized that by looking at through the window on the side of the mirror, I could see a glare, and I could kind of see if there was a smear or not. Um, and so, it's a, so I really developed a resourcefulness and creative skills in terms of accomplishing things and figuring out how to do something um, that I think is really valuable for the rest of my life. The other very significant thing also that I think might be a little unique um, to a lot of individuals is, as I said, I was a competitive swimmer on the local level within my community, but also I competed with the United States Association for Blind Athletes and was on the international team for about uh, seven, eight years. And so in my teenage years, from 12 to about 18, I uh, went to, you know, to competitions and to different countries for a month at a time with other people who were blind and low vision that I saw functioning. And I met attorneys who were totally blind and, you know, teachers and different people who were in a way models for me in terms of what you can do, whether you're low vision or blind, and you can be successful. And I think that was a very positive influence because in my local community, um, there were not too many people who were low vision or blind that I interacted with. But on this larger scale, I was able to interact with a lot of people, and I think that gave me confidence. So when somebody said, you, you know, I don't think you can do that. I thought, I know somebody that's doing that. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Now, Keith, for you, I know that you're a, a person who's, uh, you know, definitely not shy at all to let people know about your vision impairment. And um, you, you were so instrumental in reaching out to help me as I was going through so many emotional problems. But at what time in your life do you feel that you gained the confidence so that you could let others know you had a vision problem and that you weren't worried about whether or not it was macho or your ego didn't, you know, uh, get into the way. What what point in your life do you think you were able to disclose that you had a vision problem without any hesitation? It was certainly in college. <laughs> it wasn't in junior high and high school. Those were the most traumatic years, I think. But... Um, I remember some some specific situations where I was going to college and um, I, I didn't have the necessary study skills and things like that, and I had to ask for some help. And I was just so not wanting to ask for help because I was so much into, you know, I, I got to find a way of doing it myself. You know, don't ask for help. You know, um, that I remember 
certain circumstances where I asked some people for help, and, and it was when I started carrying the cane. I wouldn't use it all the time, but I'd pull it out, and I just noticed that people treated me with more respect, and um, it seemed like they were they were talking to me in a way that they they thought, you know, this is a guy that can do it, because I, I didn't have a lot of confidence that I could do it. I wasn't sure that I could make it through college, to be honest with you. Um, I knew I, I needed an education, but uh, I wasn't sure how, how I was going to do it. And when I started to let people know, you know, I don't see very well, and the way that they reacted to that information was like, it wasn't a big deal to them, but rather, so what are you going to do about it? So, well, here's what I'm going to do, and I act like I had a whole plan, I, and, I, and it seemed plausible, and, and I just uh, figured out that uh, I need to, needed to have a plan, and, and even though it was uncomfortable, there was a lot of fear, but I just would do it anyways, and it, and it worked out. Uh, but it did take a long time because uh, I, I, I didn't really have a whole lot of role models that I really could look up to to say, hey, look, there's a blind guy that could do this and this and this, and, and um, I feel confident I'm, I have those abilities, you know. I, I wasn't really sure, so it took me a little bit longer, I think. And, and I, think, I think there are some gender differences as well, going blind and being, being uh you know, being mobile, whether, you know, it's easier, I think, for a female to, you know, uh, get a ride or, or for dating, I think, sometimes. For a guy to to date and to um, feel confident to ask a girl out and, and first find out if she's got a car, you know, um, <laughs> you know, uh, there's some real awkward situations there where it might be a little more comfortable or a little more acceptable if a female was the one who... Uh, uh, was on the receiving end of that, but uh, but I think it, it just took a lot of a lot of uh, many experiences where I had to uh, I had a lot of I made a lot of mistakes and realized you know I didn't have to say that I couldn't do it or I didn't have to beat myself up over not being able to do something, but by reaching out for help and asking for you know some suggestions from other people and not being you know. Uh, just humbling myself and say, hey, you know, I, I can't see very well, and uh, this is what I need to do. Uh, any ideas? Go to the, you know, go to um, the Office for Suits with Disabilities, or or reach out to people at the Braille Institute, and just listen because I, I think I closed my mind off to a lot of what people were telling me because I was fighting so much to be a sighted person rather than hear the message of it's okay to be visually impaired or blind. You just need to, you know prepare yourself with the tools to get it done. Yes, and I, I could say for myself, it got to the point for me that it was so exhausting and so much work to try to be something that I wasn't. Yes. In other words, I would go to places and sort of scope out the places so that I would make certain I knew where a step might be or where a glass window might be so I don't walk into it. I would scope things out so that if I did have to go there for a particular luncheon or something, then I wouldn't look like a blind person, and I was always trying to hide it. And when I then started to get to the point where I was able to do as, as you said, I would tell people, well, you know, I got a vision problem. They would say, what do you mean you got a vision problem? You're an eye doctor. You can't have a vision problem. You don't look blind. You know, all of those things, I started to find it humorous just to kind of write down everything that people said. I mean, it didn't make me angry, but I just thought it's so humorous of what are the things that people say. I would then tell my parents, you know, oh, yeah, I'm not seeing so well today. Oh, don't worry, don't worry. You know what? They're going to have eye transplants real soon. I saw it in the <laughs> National Enquirer. <laughs> you know, you, you see these things. But I, I soon learned by disclosing that I had a vision problem or that I didn't see very well, people really didn't seem to treat me that different. It was just more that they were curious. They didn't know others. But the way they actually treated me was really the same. And that made it much easier for me to disclose. Now, Kathy, how about the, the job process to apply for a job? Did you find that it was helpful, or did you disclose that you had a vision impairment as you applied for the job, or what's been your experience? With respect to employment, I think for me that you know, to me that's one of the toughest questions, and you know, and there's different viewpoints um, related to that. 
Uh, initially, when I was first applying for jobs out of college, no, I did not disclose. I may have, um, and, and I don't even think that I really oh, had anything on my resume or anything that would indicate that until I got to the interview and the, or, you know, was offered an interview, and then I might ask for specific directions. You know, could you be very specific? Because I'll actually be walking to the interview. Um, you know, and, and the the um, astute person would say, oh, is there, you know, do you like walking or something, you know, whereas yeah, others would say, okay. Um, I did have an interview, one of my first interviews uh, for a position um, with a organization, and it sounded really good. But when I got there, she's like, you're great, and I really like this. I just can't get over the fact that you can't see that well. And she told me that blatantly. And I thought, oh, my goodness. You know? um, and I was devastated. And I'm like, you know, and I tried to convince her. And it's like, no, no, no. And, I, you know, and I, uh, you know, knowing what I know now, I mean, I totally could have sued her. But that wasn't the purpose um, of the point. The, I think that um, it, so it's difficult to decide should I disclose or not. In my my role in higher education um, at the university, um, one, I, I've been promoted three times at the university I work at, and so I'm known. I'm, you know, and, and actually one of the things that I think is good is because everybody does know who I am because I am one of the few people that, uh, that uses a cane on campus. And so, to me, you know, in a way that that's an advantage. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of applying for, if I was to apply for another job, at this point, because of the roles I'm going into and because of diversity being valued at other institutions, I would disclose, I would disclose and I would disclose I, um, in, my, in my cover letter and, and resume um, different organizations I belong to or the cover letter about the, um, that I bringing diversity to the mixture of the, or, you know, would bring it to the mixture of the organization um, because of the setting that I'm in. Uh, and so for me, it, I think it would be a little bit easier than if I was to go out into the community and apply uh, someplace that's non-education related. I think I'd look at the organization and see, do they, um, one, I would want to, I'd take a look at um, and looking at a position that is non-disability related I would really look at the company and say, where are they at? You know, is there any indication or not? Um, I think that I would probably not uh, promote myself and my qualities and abilities and characteristics. And then later on, probably, in, you know, towards the interview or before the interview, share that. And just by the way, I wanted to let you know that, uh, so you're not surprised when I, when we meet, I, you know, I, am legally blind or something like that. Mm-hmm. How about you, Keith? Well, I, I, I agree. I, I remember going on many, many interviews, and um, I tried different things, and, and uh, everything I tried just didn't seem to work. <laughs> but um, I did realize that as long as I was honest up front, there was, I didn't feel like I was hiding anything. And, and there, there was the uncomfortable, oh, God, how do I break it to them, you know? Um, when I, when I um, applied for my teaching position, I decided that uh, I would go in and um, basically be up front, and I was prepared for what were, what would, I, I prepared by saying, okay, what would their concerns be? which are mainly, you know, grading, uh, classroom management, uh, keeping up with the paperwork and things like that. So I think really for me the most important thing was is to have good answers to the questions that they were going to be asking and, and have some reasonable accommodations that I would provide or ones that I could suggest that could be provided that, would, that wouldn't be, you know, a huge expense but uh, make it doable. And um, I basically put on the table just saying this is this is where I'm at this is what I can do and um, um, I just it, it's it's a real it's a real individual decision to make whether when you disclose and uh, or even if uh, before the interview um, it, it does depend on the field that you're you're applying for and and um, it, it, it is an individual decision you need to really think about ahead of time. And if I may yeah. add, 
beyond the the applying for a job, now one of the roles that I you know that I'm in, um, I do a lot of going to different network functions, um, events on campus where there's a lot of different people, and sometimes it's the networking, it's those um, the socials or you know functions where you get a lot of business done if you can connect with the right people, and so. For me, it's really learning, you know, the strategies of how can I navigate the room and interact with the people that I want to interact with or, you know, mingle with people, um, you know, make the connections. Um, that, to me, is the more difficult piece of it um, yeah. as well. Yeah. I, I, I must agree. I think that's probably the hardest thing for me uh, walking into, whether it's a staff meeting or whether it's uh, – uh, the lunch room or just uh, walking by a group of people who are teachers, you know they are. As my vision changes, I'm noticing that my strategies for engaging with people has to change as well. Before, I'd be able to walk towards a crowd and tell by the height or the color of their hair or, or uh, where they might be standing who would probably be in that crowd or, or be sit- seated where. But as my vision deteriorates, you know, everything changes, and I think it's it's really a challenge to try and learn those different skills. And they're used to you being able to recognize them one year, and the next year, you know, it, it, they just assume that things are the same, and they don't. It's hard to explain and uh, adjust to sometimes. Yes, and I think it's really a dynamic situation for so many. If you have a condition such as glaucoma or retinitis pigmentosa or diabetic retinopathy. Many times it is a progressive condition where your vision worsens. But I think that when you get the confidence to be able to disclose that you do have the vision problem and you let others know that you don't see well by simply saying, you know, I have a vision problem, I don't see very well, I have really bad eyes. It could be something just as gentle as that. Uh, I think you become more comfortable with it. You're less anxious and you learn different types of strategies. So um, let's go ahead and uh, can you answer a couple of questions? Can we open up to questions from the sure. uh, attendees? Okay, sure. let's unmute your phones with a star six, and we'll take some calls and questions for Keith and Kathy. Okay, how about the first question? Does anybody out there have a question? Star six. Dr. Bill, this is Janelle Grissom, and um, I have a question to all of you, really. <laughs> I must be living in a different universe because my experiences using my cane uh, have been very negative as far as the reactions that I get. And when I do use my cane all the time whenever I go out, and I get very negative reactions to it from, you know, I feel like I'm parting the Red Sea because everybody scatters and it's with a negative feeling like here comes the leper kind of a feeling and the other reaction I get is even trip over my cane and then look at me like I did something wrong. Is there a magic trick that I should you be using to, uh, I just, you know, people just don't seem to have respect and they even call it a stick. Some of my eye doctors even call it my stick, don't forget your stick. You know, uh, is there something, uh, a trick that I should use to don't take it personally. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't. I don't take it personally, but I am amazed at at the ignorance of people. You know, and, and yeah, yes. you know, the people are you know have a lot of different baggage themselves at times. That's, and, yeah, you know, and, you know, and, you know, and, um, and uh, perspectives. Um, I have had those experiences. I have people saying all the time, oh, don't forget your stick, or here's the stick. <laughs> and I say, oh, it's a white cane, and okay, whatever. It's just, I think also, you know, in terms of the, the parting sea, um, I walk fast with my cane, and, uh-huh. you know, and and people kind of joke with me about it. Oh, yeah, you can tell Kathy's coming. Everybody parts. Get out of the way. <laughs> I'm getting from point A to point B, you know, and... Um, and I think that part of it is, you know, just having, you know, just accepting that mm-hmm. it's going to happen. Um, and, yeah, it, it can feel uncomfortable. Um, but it, I've had the experience where people want to assist me and I say, oh, no, thank you. I can, do, you know, I can get there myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say, oh, no, no, let me assist you. And they start pushing me. Um, you know, 
uh, and they think they're helping. And I have to keep in mind, I think they're thinking they're helping, or if they don't say anything as I walk by and hit them, they think they're helping by by not saying anything um, is one perspective that I try to take. Yeah, it, ha- yeah. it, happens, it happens to me as well. And I, I think um, something that, that I that, that's really helped me is I, I, I kind of try not to uh, obviously let it bother me, but... I have to try and have a sense of humor about it. Mm-hmm. I have to kind yeah. of laugh at, my, at at the situation and maybe understand where they might be coming from a little bit. And and you know, it's almost like you can't give it too much thought. You have to kind of like, oh, well, that that was kind of a bummer situation. But uh, if you dwell on it, or if you, if that parting of the sea really bothered you, it it, <laughs> it tends to stick with you. You know, and it yeah. can ruin the rest of your day, or or your lunch, or work, or school, or whatever wherever you're yeah. headed. And so, I, I always try to laugh, whether it's at myself or or just try and find something, something I at least smile and not look like smiling because <laughs> I, I parted the sea. But oh, that was embarrassing. That boy, that was embarrassing. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, I, just, I just I just smile. I, I try to smile, especially when I'm really uncomfortable, and I get in really embarrassing situations uh, frequently, actually. And um, <laughs> I just try to smile, and I just, you know, I'm sorry, and I just move on. And I try not to give it too much. I don't let it occupy my mind too long, and I let it go. I just try to say, let it go. Well, I'm like you. Yeah. I, I have a sense of humor about things. I have a positive outlook, and it's just... It, I observe all of these reactions, and it's very seldom that you get what could be called an appropriate reaction and a genuine offer of help. But um, I just go on. I do what I have to do, and my cane is is part of me, and that's it's my curb finder. It's my it helps with my depth perception, yes. and I, that's what I have to do to get where I need to go. And oh well, you know, yes. if, if people have those reactions, then. And that's yeah. on them, you know. So yeah, and, and Janelle, you know what what I what I would suggest is that I realize that most people, most people in the United States, they are not familiar with what it's like to be either visually impaired or legally blind or totally blind. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same type of thing when I hear people say, "Oh, look at that seeing eye dog! It's so beautiful." Uh, they're just ignorant to the terminology. And right. so kids, little kids come into my office all the time, and they always say, Dr. Bill, where's your laser? And they mean my stick. <laughs> so, so I don't, I, this is key, and Kathy said, I don't really take that in a personal way. Right. But I, I, use, I use all of this as a means to educate them, and I want them to know, what are some of these things called? And I also want them to know that just because a person has a vision impairment, it does not mean that they're not capable of doing things. So just as part of the mission of the CCLBI, I think that we could use these opportunities as, as a way to educate. Yes. Is there another question? Hey, um, I wanted to ask for further uh, assistance. Um, I found uh, what you all had to say very, very interesting. I'm visually impaired, but it's not apparent to outside to to others, and um, I find that I have really withdrawn and just stopped doing things because I'm so utterly embarrassed, uh, and I don't want to be dependent. I don't want to ask for help needlessly because I know sometime in the future I'll have to ask for much more help, and I don't want to use up my karma or my credit, so to speak. Um, And I wondered if you could address or or give any suggestions on how to get over the psychological hurdle of being so embarrassed and not wanting to tell people and not wanting to ask for help and not getting out there and doing things in the world just because I think, well, if I do, I'm going to be a burden on other people and I don't want to do that. One of the things, if I may um, answer, is that I also belong to Toastmasters International, which is a public speaking organization. And when I, I was very nervous about joining because I thought, oh, transportation, what am I going to do? You know, all those things that we think of. And what I did was I called up the, the, the individual, um, contact person, and said that 
I was very interested in improving my speaking. I felt that the, the program would be very beneficial for me, and I had something to contribute. I also do not see that well, so I was not able to drive. And is there any um, approach that she would recommend in terms of a scene about carpooling with somebody who lives local, you know, close to me or what have you? And so um, I was very specific about what type of assistance I was interested in versus... Um, right. In my case, I'm not wanting to tell people. They can't tell looking at me, and I just, uh, I... Then maybe they have a ride or, you know, is, like, for example, transportation. Is, you know, is there, I don't drive. Is there somebody I could carpool with? Uh Well, you know, for me, I I felt exactly as you did. I was so embarrassed and I was a macho man, didn't want to ask anybody for help. But things changed for me. There was a couple of turning points in my life. One of them was the passing of my brother who suddenly passed away. And the second was when when my, my son said, you know, Dad, you just can't stay at home all the time by yourself. And it made me realize that life is very, very precious. And I have to either, number one, learn how to develop the skills to travel independently and develop the skills to allow people to help if they want to help. And, and I, I pursued the orientation mobility training, for me, that was the most helpful because it gave me uh, an escape of freedom from my home where I could take the bus, I could walk places. But what I then soon learned is that so many of my friends and people that were just colleagues, they wanted to help. They wanted me to go to the dinner with them or to a movie or to a basketball game, even if I was not able to see it. And so I didn't realize that I was missing out on life. I was missing out on good memories uh, simply because I was too egotistical and too embarrassed. So what I would suggest to you is just to think about this is your only life and there's so much that you could enjoy in life without having perfect vision. You could enjoy food. You could enjoy music. You could enjoy all these uh, times you're spending with friends whether you have vision or not. And I think that once you start to think of it that way, you're then going to be able to do these things. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that I recommend for a lot of my patients who get tired of telling people, oh, I got a vision problem, we often recommend what is called an identification cane. And an identification cane, it's a very small, foldable cane. And if you're in an area that there might be a lot of people or in that situation, you could unfold it, and people immediately know that you have a vision problem. By them watching you with a cane, too, they'll also realize, well, you're not totally blind, but you got a vision problem, and that's why you're taking so long on the buffet line or what have you. But it eliminates a lot of the need to explain things. It, it gives you that type of freedom, and I think you will find out that there's a lot of people who are either just very curious about your situation and there's also people who are just genuinely very, very thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is Anne. Can I add to that? Because um, I'm older, <laughs> quite old, and I'm where I was living at one point. I was passing, as I realized, and uh, really, um, kind of people didn't know or. They were uncomfortable at times, the ones that didn't know. And when I went to a blind center where the people were totally blind that were helpful with setting my watch and doing things, and it was with a sense of humility. And I love those people because I learned a lot from being exposed to them. I I now belong to a lion's group here in the complex where I live, and I'm surprised to find that they don't. They do wonderful things with the white cane sale and everything, but they don't know what it's like to have somebody visually impaired. And I do have the problem of approaching the groups of people, and I don't know whether they're looking at me, whether I'm invading what they're talking about, and they're all wearing the yellow vest. And I have taken the microphone more times and have asked that, please, will you tell me your name, you know, that I, no matter how many times you have to tell me because I can't see who you are. But it still is very difficult. And at the buffet buffet table, it's between 
showing I'm independent and asking for help. Cause sometimes I ask for help and they'll just say, oh, everything here is good or something. Yes. No, that's great. That's that's good advice. Let's see. Let's take one more question. Does anybody else have a question for Keith or Kathy? Um, I have a comment. My um, name is Laurel, and uh, I'm from the other the other coast. I uh, listen very intently to your life stories, and it you know it sounds so uh, very uh, um, idyllic because um, some people you know, come from urban areas and come from poverty. And and I think, you know, like, you you guys are all, you know, uh, have superior intellect and you, you know, you've got your degrees and, and you got to your places. What, what can you, what can you offer? What can you say to the person who, you know, the cream rises to the top, okay? You know, the, the 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 poor schlumper, you know, who's who's skim milk, and um, you know wants a life and wants um, to work. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of people have found you know very very wonderful um, careers, and it's concentrated on um, helping other, uh, counseling other people with low vision. I mean, I, I, you know, I feel, you know, as I, I'm a person with, with, um, you know, with a, a dominant RP, so I had a later onset, and my experience is that, you know, I just, I, I want to go down to Washington D.C. and lobby for affirmative action, because, uh, from my experience, no one is 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 going to be um, helped. Um, the, the 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 common person with with without you know Google or IBM or uh, other organizations you know don't pussyfoot around you know gee are they going to accept me it's like make them accept you make make these you know make mainstream um, uh, you know America uh, see you and and accept you I, okay. I know that they're Keith? Keith, would you uh, like to comment on that about some of your students who are not those who don't go to college or maybe they're not a a genius per se? And can you talk about some of those successes and what are their attributes? Sure. I think it starts in kindergarten when I get them. Uh, It it, it has to do with attitudes. It has to do with support from the the homes. It has to do with the teachers' um, perceptions of abilities. They got none of that. They got none of it. They got none of it. I'm sorry. What? If, what? What? What if students don't have any of it? Well, uh, I think that that's part of what we are here as part of CCLVI. I think that every one of us here, if you know, if you know of children who don't have the family support structure to assist, or maybe they have the world's worst teacher for the visually impaired. Uh-huh. But if you are familiar with these children. I think that this is an agenda that we should take on where we may want to develop some type of program. For example, here in Los Angeles next month, we're putting on a program for the children that you're talking about. These are kids who are legally blind in the Los Angeles Unified School District. They come from very often families that are illegal. The parents are uneducated. The parents are poor. And what we're doing is we're putting on a day for them where they can actually meet other people who have made it despite their vision impairment. We're going to be having a gentleman who's uh, owner of a record company who has dominant RP, and he was able to struggle through things and, and, and become successful. We have a, a young student who's 13 who had both of his eyes removed due to retinoblastoma, and mm-hmm. he has moved forward. And we're trying to create this type of network. So I would recommend and challenge you, if you do know of these types of kids, that you try to bring them to a local chapter of CCLVI or that you start a local chapter. And and we try to do what we can to try to help these kids because we know that not all of them have the parents that Kathy had. Or we know that, um, for example, I had a major advantage because I went blind after I was a doctor for 20 years, okay? Right. 
Um, so there are those other kids, but maybe that's something that we could do as part of the CCLVI to, yes. to help people. I would absolutely like is if CCLVI went, went to Washington. I don't, I don't think there's going to be anything until there's affirmative action for, um, you know, blind and, and, and disabled in, individuals because no one is going to hire you. Let me just ask one last comment. Um, at our center, the Center for the Partially Sighted, we see hundreds, hundreds of visually impaired adults each year through the Department of Rehabilitation. And we often wonder, why is it that so many of these people are not employed? Is it because of their blindness? In part, it is. Is it because they don't have the tools or equipment? No, because the Department of Rehabilitation gives it to them. Right. But the missing, the missing factor, the missing factor that we see is that the majority of these people who are unemployed do not have specific skills. They might have a computer, and they may know how to use JAWS, but they don't know how to type a story. They may have they may have the tools, mm. and they may have actually the software program, but they don't have the accounting background to do spreadsheets. Uh-huh. So, and this, oh, well, oh, all right. That's very interesting. Okay. Okay. And I would actually add one more... Skill, and it's the interpersonal and communication skills uh-huh. and how one is perceived by others. And that actually, I would say, is the most important and critical skill. You know, communication and interaction skills are the most important and critical skills for employment. And, employment and, you, also touched, and you also touched upon it when you were talking about getting on the bus and saying you want to pay your own way. When you when you feel as though when when like in school kids know who, who if if all the rules apply to them they're going to learn growing up I'm going to compete for the same jobs as my peers are so we need to get them ready to start competing for the same grades that starts in kindergarten and that was the point that I was yeah. really going to get at oh okay well, this, has been, this has been very 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 helpful so i know that we're running out of uh, tape back there so i want to thank all of you for for joining in and this podcast is going to be available at the cclvi.org website and it will also be available at www.airsla that's www.airsla.org so i want to thank you keith and kathy for being on the show this evening Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. We'll have to have you back. And thanks for recording this, Mr. Dick Burden from Airs LA. Good night, everybody.